this. If you guys have Bibles with you, please, please turn them to Exodus chapter 2. Um, bit predictable as we did Exodus 1 last week. Um, and yeah, we're, we are going to go all, all the way through Exodus, just so you know. And also, a uh, uh, little, little forewarning, this will not be the happiest sermon in the world, not that you've ever heard. Uh, so, um, please pray with me. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that, that your word would speak to us in, in the places where we are struggling and broken, um, that your word would build us up, that your word would bring comfort and confidence to us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the, uh, if you walk with God for any amount of time, one of the, one of the questions that you're going to ask yourself is why is God silent while his people suffer? I, I told you this wasn't going to be super cheery, um, but there's a movie, a great movie actually, that you should all see. Uh, it was made by Martin Scorsese called Silence. Did anybody see it? couple of you. Uh, yeah, so, so it's about a persecution of the, of the church in Japan in, uh, I believe it was the 1640s. There was, a, this is a little-known historical event, but, but Japan actually outlawed the Christian faith at that time, and, was, and they were trying to eradicate it. Now, um, it had taken hold mainly in coastal, like, fishing poor villages, and the, the movie which Scorsese spent like 30 years on because it was such an important uh, question. He is asking this question, why is God silent uh, when his people suffer? And uh, it's about these two uh, missionary priests, and they go and they live underground in this village, not literally underground, but in secret. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're in hiding, and, and they're, they're doing communion and services and, and sermons and, and prayers for people at night. They're hearing confession in secret, right? And it's a great comfort for these, for these villagers um, to, to have them there. Um, and then one day, the inquisitorial squad shows up. And they suspect three men in that village of being Christians. And so, and, and this is historically accurate, they, they, they brought them out in front of the whole village to make an example of them. And they, they forced them to renounce Christ by spitting on a cross or face the consequences. And these three men chose to face the consequences. And what they did is they planted three crosses in the surf and tied them to them. And they were over four days slowly and agonizingly killed in that way. And, and in the movie, the, the two priests are watching from a secret, you know, hidden a hiding spot. They begin to wrestle with their faith. Why the silence? Why is God silent while his people suffer? And Scorsese is a great artist, does a great, does a great job with that question, but it, it's, it's a question that many of us have asked or are going to ask. Why is God silent while his people suffer? And I'll just go ahead and give voice to a lot of our fears. We, and, and let's define silence real quick. What do we mean by silence? Right? Because in, in many ways, God isn't silent at all. We know that 
that creation speaks God's a message about God at all times, that, that you know, we, we have God's word that speaks to us. The Holy Spirit is active, the church, right? All of these things speak for God literally every day uh, or as a, as a means of God speaking every day. But, but when, we, when we see either a situation in the world of terrible suffering, you know, families evicted in winter, a mom of little kids who has a terminal diagnosis, the horrors of war and the effect on, especially on civilians. Uh, 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 you know, I, I'm a big fan of history and it depresses me. I was listening this morning to a program on the Irish potato famine. Just don't. It, I'm horribly depressed all day now. Like, it, it was awful. And, and, and we say, well, God doing something about it would be like ending it, deliverance, right? Or some good explanation, some, some reason why it makes sense. Uh, and, and when we don't get either, that's God being silent. And what we fear is one of two things, that God doesn't care or that God's silence means that he is absent. It seems to us, when we open the Bible, that God is doing stuff left and right all the time, right? And it's like, well, why don't we see that? Well, that, for starters, that's actually off. Uh, God does, like, there are long, silent periods, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but, but we are actually coming to the end of a silent period in Exodus 2. They were living through a silent period from the time of, of Joseph uh, till Exodus 2, and and if you remember from last week, God's people had grown into a great nation, but now they were living, living under crushing tyranny, slavery, oppression, and that all Hebrew baby boys were prescribed to death by drowning in the Nile. This is awful suffering. And, and we, we pick up, like we, we enter the story in verse 1 through one woman's plight. Now, the way this sermon's going to work is, is we're going to just, for a while, we're not going to draw conclusions. We're just going to pay close attention to the text. So I, I suggest, if you can't see this, have a Bible open, right? Like, pay attention. We're going to use our imagination. We're going to use our brains, all right? Verse 1, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. put ourselves in her shoes. The good news is you're pregnant. The bad news is if it's a boy, he is legally to be put to death. What's that pregnancy like, guys? How, how bad are you hoping, if you're her, that you give birth to a girl so that you don't have to live through that horror? But she gives birth to a boy. When she saw that he was a fine child, now, don't, don't get, it, get it wrong here. It's not like, well, we'll see what this kid, you know, one, once they kind of can control their hands, we'll see if it's a cute baby. If so, I'll care. No, it, it just means that the, the Hebrew literally, literalistically translated would be he was beautiful to her, right? And, and it's like, you know how parents are. I, oh, my baby's the cutest. It's not, but like... <laughs> You know, like, you, you can't help yourself. That, that's what's going on here, is that she's attached 
to him. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Again, use your imagination. Where do you live if you're a Hebrew slave? Big house, lots of room, basement? No. Single room shack kind of thing? Mud hut, probably? Okay. What's it like to hide an infant? To keep it a secret that you have a baby boy? Now, for those of you who are parents, you know in the first few weeks, <laughs> the babies don't do much. They eat, sleep, poop, repeat. That's it. But then they start getting a little more active, a little more vocal. They start, you know, turning over and that sort of thing. And at some point, this woman said, it's no good. I cannot hide my son anymore. Maybe there was a few close calls. Maybe whatever people were responsible for carrying out Pharaoh's orders would come through the village and, you know, the, the desperate clutch of your son to keep him quiet, breastfeed him, whatever you have to do to keep him quiet, is, it's, it's getting more and more difficult. And so she comes up with what has to be one of the craziest, most desperate plans ever. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Now, growing up next to the Nile, you would know how to waterproof things. You're familiar with things that float. So this mom is waterproofing a little, like, basket with tar and pitch. And as you're doing that, what goes through your mind as you're waterproofing the basket to which you're going to trust your baby's life? Do you at some point realize this is crazy? Is there another way? But it says, then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Let's unpack that real quick because think about this. I know most of us have seen the Ten Commandments where Moses' mom just kind of is like, bye, and it goes down the river, just floats. It says she placed it among the reeds. Can you think of what that entails? I brought a map for us of Egypt. So to place it among the reeds, she's not just letting it go, she places it. And where does she place it? We know she places it near where royals live. That, that was smaller than I had hoped, but I have my laser pointer. So Goshen, where the Israelites live, is here, okay? Memphis, where the royals live, is here. And she very probably... Was down, went down to Memphis. How did she get there, guys? She had to walk with her baby in a basket, right? Now, unless she crossed the river somewhere up by her, how did she get the basket over to the reeds side where the, the royal palaces are? How, how, how wide is the Nile at its narrowest point? Do you guys know? 350 meters. How'd she get it there? Well, she had to cross the Nile in some way. Unless there was a, a boat handy or a, a, one of those, you know, these guys, the, what do you call these? Raft, a, a, a raft of some kind. She would have had to swim it. And then placing your baby in the reeds. There came a moment after what had to be one of the hardest walks ever, where you feed your baby one last time, 
you're among the reeds and you, you put the baby in the basket. Do you know what a baby does at three months when he looks up at his mom? Like baby's beaming at you, baby's smiling at you. And then you have to put a lid over it. And you have to leave him there. And then you have to turn your back and walk away. That is one of the most heroic things in the Bible, guys. I don't know. This woman's made of sterner stuff than I. She doesn't leave him totally alone. She actually leaves her daughter there. Verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. <laughs> Sister's with him. If, if you're the sister, you're sitting there waiting. You know your little brother's in there. What could happen to him? He could be found by someone who carries out Pharaoh's orders, throws him in the river. Correct? Could be found by a wild animal. That's easy. But what does happen, let's take a look in verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. That's a good demonstration of royal power. Ooh, what's that? You, go. <laughs> she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So, <laughs> the, the, for, for this, this princess, this daughter of the Pharaoh, she is now suddenly holding a crying baby. Anyone ever held a crying baby? Because, you know, who knows how long he's been there. He's probably hungry, missing his mom, right? Probably confused being in a basket. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, if you're holding a crying baby and someone has any sort of solution, I don't care if it is, you know, Benito Mussolini is like, can I help you with that? You're like, here, you know, like, sure. Like, you will take it. His, uh, uh, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Now, I don't know exactly how this played out, so let's use our imaginations a little bit. So one of the most horrible days for a mom in human history, right, Like, and, and the sister who was there, it, it, they're fearing what would happen, and now, like, this has happened, and so the sister goes from despair and, and, and heart sickness to excitement. And, and she's got to go chase her mom down, and either she, she catches her mom along the way or she runs into their little hut. Like, I imagine the sister, I, I guess she's a teenager. I, we have no idea. But, but, you know, she's, like, talking excitedly, and the mom who's, like, probably bawling her eyes out, probably numb, probably grieving is like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, this kid is, is yelling something. And then when she's able to, to understand the, the, the amazing news, they both rush back. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So, 
I mean, of all the things that could happen, like you, you thought, you're, you're afraid your baby dies that day, right? You're hoping somebody compassionate finds him and takes him in. What happens? Uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, takes compassion on him, someone with power to protect him, and then says, hey, you know, this is my baby now, but you know what? Why don't you take him home and nurse him? He'll live with you for several years, and I'll give you money for it. Is that an amazing turn of events or what? I want you to catalog that and say, what a coincidence, all right? Just remember that amazing coincidence that not only was an incredible relief uh, to the mother and the sister and presumably the father, but preserved the life of Moses. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So there's a happy ending to that particular story, but God's people are still suffering, right? Have we, has God been mentioned? Not yet. Still silence, right? Remember, basically most of chapter one, God is silent. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now, in the Ten Commandments, there's a lot of misinformation. It's a good movie, though. Uh, Chuck Heston's best. Um, but uh, he knew his whole life that he was a Hebrew. It doesn't come as some, like, shocking revelation. He's, he's aware. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses' solution to his people's problem kill a single Egyptian and bury him in the sand. Let's see how it goes. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So he escapes death as a kid. His first attempt at freedom fighting doesn't go so good. And now he's got the most powerful man in the world out to kill him. What happens if you're an Egyptian and Pharaoh decides you die, you die? Have you noticed how often Moses' life is getting threatened in this chapter? Two times so far. We're not that far in. And now he goes out to Midian. This is also life-threatening. I want to show you guys an aerial map, okay? This is an aerial map of Egypt today. Um, so this is Egypt. This is the Nile Delta, right? And there's the Nile. What do you notice here? Can everybody see that that's green? You know what that means? It means there's water and food. That's why uh, Egyptian, Egypt was and is the great breadbasket of the world, the most fertile, uh, productive land in all of human history. You fed the entire Roman Empire from here with plenty, okay? Nice place to live. It's one of the great advantages they had, why their, their civilization uh, became so great. This up here is Canaan, you can see, the land of promise, right? There's also green there. Now, he goes east to Midian, What's over there? 
You see that beige area in the Sinai Peninsula here? What is that, guys? Nothing growing there. Okay? Like Bear Gryllis would say, good luck. I'm not going there. This is not a place that is easy to survive, even if you grow up there. Even if you're one of like the nomads. What about Moses, who's a, a palace kid, who grew up Cush? All of a sudden, he's running for his life. He didn't do any training. What happens to him out there? He should be dead. What happens instead? Let's take a look. But Moses fled to Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. Notice he can't abide a bully. Right? These, these seven women getting pushed around by shepherds, he, he, he won't stand for it. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father... He asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. All right. It's not just like, oh, kindness to a stranger. If you're an ancient, uh, you know, nomadic shepherd dad with seven daughters, you know what you're looking for? Seven husbands for them. Uh, because, you know, there was no police force or anything like that. Uh, you were your own police force. And so it was very, very important to have fighting men around who could not only do, do the, the heavy lifting of shepherding. I know women can do it too, guys. This is the ancient world. They thought differently. Um, and also, you know, like if you had to defend your household, you, you, you wanted some dudes around. Uh, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So again, another close call for Moses. Happy ending. But what's happening with God's people? It's, it's literally almost like a movie. It's like we follow Moses, and they said, but back in Goshen. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. You notice it does not say they cried out to God or to Yahweh. They're just crying out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This doesn't mean he forgot it. It means he's still keeping it. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The ESV puts it a little more punchy. It says, and God knew. So during this period of silence, his people have been suffering. Does it mean that God is unconcerned? Far from it. He knows he hears. He's with them. He is present with them. Does it mean that he's absent? No. He's been with them. He knows what's happening. And he has been working on it. He has been at work to deliver them. 
Have we seen any examples of that in the text, maybe? I mean, why tell us this long story about how Moses nearly died in three different ways? Isn't it a coincidence that the person who should find him can not, not only has compassion on him, but can protect him? Isn't that a coincidence? Isn't it a coincidence that this particular person, God's instrument of deliverance, has a character that can't stand bullies? What does he have to do through this whole book? Stand up. Have a backbone, right? Isn't it a coincidence that his life is preserved in very, very harsh territory where by all rights he should have died of exposure, yet he not only survives but ends up getting married into a family? We see that even when he's silent, God has been at work. We're going to see how the raising up of this deliverer is God's plan for delivering his people. What we see here is that God, during silence, is present and he's working. Now, that working might throw some of us. God, working? What? Doesn't he just kind of snap things and it happens? Well, like... God is mysterious, but one thing seems clear from Scripture. It's that redemption is not easy, even for God. Don't listen. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, is weeping in the garden and sweating blood. It taxes him. It, 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 it pegs him. It li- it, he hits his absolute limit. It takes everything he has, right? Redemption is not easy. It takes work. I don't know how. I, you know, God, work, figure it out yourself. I don't know. But for whatever reason, God's plan of redemption, it hits silent periods. You know, it, it, the, the flood may have been about, you know, 20,000 B.C. That, that's when the archaeological records kind of indicate it was. And... Abraham, the next installment of redemption, wasn't until about 2400 BC. That's like 18,000 years of silence, right? And we're like, oh, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus. There may be another 16,000 before the next installment, major installment of redemption, right? So, so what about during that silence? Does that mean that God is absent? Does it mean that God is forgot, that God is, is taking his hands off the wheel? No, it means that he's with us, and it means that he's working. What we need to do is trust God and persevere during silence. When we look around at the suffering of the world, when we see the misery of the world, when we're going through a a really challenging season of our own lives, when we're facing mortality, suffering, insecurity, or what have you, We cannot interpret silence as absence, but that God is with us and working. This is a really important thing. Not only walking with with God, but also in in relationships, period, is when you have a gap, you could fill it with two things, right? Let me tell you what I mean by gap. I'm going to make feel uncomfortable right now. I'll make Carolyn Kadicki feel uncomfortable. Great. So... I say hello to Carolyn Kunicki in the morning, you know, one morning when I see her. 
Hey, Carolyn. She ignores me. Doesn't say hi back. Now, there's a gap. There's two explanations here. One, Carolyn hates my guts, has been faking this whole time that we're friends, and actually bears me animosity and decided just to snub me. That's filling that gap with suspicion. Or I could fill it with trust and say, she didn't hear me, she's not feeling well, or is distracted, something like that. She just missed it, right? I could fill it with suspicion, worst possible conclusion, or trust, best possible conclusion, right? And in a relationship where you, where you have reason to believe that, that, you know, that the best about a person, you fill it with trust. When we talk about having faith, right, we're not talking about turning our brains off and just believe even though there's no evidence for it. It's saying when we have a gap, and we could say, hey, there's silence. We're living in a silent period of sorts. Or I haven't been delivered from this particular problem, this, 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 this difficulty. And I don't understand why. Why is God silent? We could fill it with two things. Suspicion, it's because he doesn't care. It's because he's not there. Or trust, he's working. Like, like think about that real quick. Like, um, like uh, last year, she, my, my wife had hip surgery, right? It's a long surgery, like eight hours, something like that. You don't remember, you were under. Um, so she had a great time, because she didn't know what was happening. Right, our kids, some of you guys took our kids, which was awesome. But I, I, you know, tried to, I set up at a coffee shop nearby the hospital so that I could go see her when it was over. And, um, and like, I was just sitting there nervously, trying to distract myself with work. And I would get, like, updates from the surgical team. They'd be like, things are going good, blah, blah, blah. And there would be periods of silence. Now, what if I were to send a, hey, any news? And I didn't get any news. And I was like, that must mean they quit. They all went home. My wife's laying on the table right now with her hip cut open, and they're all like just eating macaroni, watching TV. Right? Like, like if I take the silence to mean they're, they're not working, they, they quit. What's the real reason? They're working. That's why they're not texting. Right? Hands are full. Working on it doesn't mean it's not happening because I'm not getting messages. Look, so, some of you guys work in some pretty tough spaces. Your counselors, social services, um, shelter, uh, um, teachers, doctors, medical professionals. You, you see the brokenness and misery of the world all the time. You face it every day. And this question comes to you. Like, why, why won't God just deliver this person? Why won't God just heal this mom or this child? Why won't God just make a check show up so this family doesn't get evicted? And we don't have an answer. We have silence. What do we do in that moment? When you're... When you're facing down the same problem you've been facing down and struggling with for years, and you're like, hey, I believe in your power to change me, God. Why don't you change me so I'm not struggling with this depression anymore? I'm not struggling with this sin pattern. Like, break the chains. 
We sing songs, break the chains. I'm ready for the chains to be broken. Chain breaking. Let's go, God. You know? And you get silence and not deliverance. What do you do? You got a gap, right? You fill the gap with trust. Trust that God is still with you, even though the problem is still there. Even though the suffering is still there. Trust that God is working. That deliverance is, in fact, coming. That each and every one of us have a promise from God to undo the evil of the world. But I've applied to 100 jobs. I don't have one. Right? I'm still depressed. I'm still broke after all these years. My family's still broken. Now, I'm not saying not to grieve. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that you need to, you know, that, that it's wrong to long for deliverance from those things or that it's wrong to lament them. What I am saying is don't despair and don't stop. It's like Winston Churchill once said, when you're going through hell, keep going. You don't think that was funny? I think that was funny. Right? You don't quit. It allows us to, 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 to hold on to a reasonable hope that God is in fact with us even in silence and that God is working. There was a, um, it's another movie, but does everybody, everybody see Signs, M. Night Shyamalan? Anybody? A couple of us, I'm going to totally ruin it for you. You haven't seen it. It's been like 30 years or maybe like 22. Anyway, it's about this uh, Episcopal priest, right? Like, like again, th this, this question of God's silence while, his, while people suffer. Like, a lot of great artists have, have, have taken it up, and this is a good one. Um, Mel Gibson plays this uh, Episcopal priest who's lost his faith. He's lost his faith because, you know, of all these unresolved, unresolvable problems in his life, uh, you know, first of all, he, he's got a brother who was this promising baseball player who, you know, could crank the ball, had a pro swing, but could not take a pitch. That means not swing at a pitch. And, and he, he, you know, couldn't, couldn't make the, the big leagues. So he lives with him instead, doing nothing. He's got a son that has such horrific asthma that, you know, it threatens his life on a regular basis. And he's got a daughter. Her, she seems fine to me, but she has a quirk that she'll... She like takes it, she'll fill up a glass of water, take a single sip, and leave it. And and like they, they present this as something unusual. I'm like, it's my kid. All five of my kids have that. <laughs> right? Like our house is full of half drunk glasses of water. And so their house is like just full, like ours, um, of half drunk glasses of water. And and of course, most of all, he lost his wife in this really bizarre freak accident and she was alive just long enough to where her last words to him were tell whatever his brother's name was i forget say it's murray tell murray swing away and he took that to mean because her last words had no significance he's like it was just a random random firing of a synapse uh, uh and she she accessed some memory and it means nothing and he said yeah all of this all of this suffering and yet god is silent. And so he, he walked away from being a priest. He walked away from his faith. And then alien ships appear over earth. 
that, that is what, I mean, I'm doing a, you know, I'm like Chris Pratt in uh, Parks and Rec acting out Roadhouse. This is, you're seeing the movie right now. <laughs> and, and, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, this is it, right? We're not alone in the universe. This is great. They're going to take us to higher civilization. Look at those ships. That's great. And, um, of course, it turns out that, uh, that there was no meaning and no significance to these ships. That, yes, you're not alone in the universe, and that's not a good thing. That they're not even here for conquest. They're here on a food run. And they're just going to grab some humans, take them, and eat them. And, uh, and so once everyone figures out that that's what's happening, this family spends a, like a really harrowing, scary night in a, in a basement, and they survive. But when they come up in the morning, there was one alien left. Like as they're breathing a sigh of relief, they look in the other room, and there's a big alien holding his son and exuding some sort of gas into his face, which is probably not healthy, right? And like everyone freezes. And Mel Gibson, the thing that comes to his mind is his wife's last words, tell Murray, swing away. And so he just says to Murray, swing away. There happens to be a bat, a commemorative bat from a home run he hit, like 500 feet or something. And he grabs the bat and he swings at the alien and the alien drops the kid and he backs into, you know, a, a piece of furniture that had water and the water spills on the alien. It works like acid. Right? And Mel Gibson grabs his kid and he looks around at all these glasses of water and, and Joaquin Phoenix just goes to town on this alien, takes care of that. And then he sees, he's like trying to, to see what the damage to his son was. And he's realizing he's having an asthma attack, right? And he's like, he sticks the EpiPen in his leg. He starts breathing and it was his asthma that saved him from the, the whatever that gas was from the alien. And the, the, the movie's making a theological point that what he took as silence in his suffering was actually God working all that time to deliver him. You don't have to see the movie. <laughs> we all want to see that ending, and we will. But for us to get to that ending, we need to trust God during the silence because God is with us and working in the silence. Please pray with me. God, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would trust you, even when it's hard to trust, that we would fill this gap with faith that you were with us and that you were working and that you will undo the sin and suffering of the world and will deliver us. In Jesus' name, amen.